We're now in the final stages here of the book of Genesis, the final quarter. And as you look at the book of Genesis, really the last 25% is primarily about one guy. Now we're going to see Jacob mentioned a ton, but it really is about the life of Joseph. And that's actually pretty easily discerned as to why, because it will be Joseph who's going to be the bearer of the messianic line. And so the remainder of the book of Genesis contains all these pictures that we find from Joseph's life. It's going to be the continuing story of Jacob to some degree, but we'll turn to chapter 37 tonight. So if you'd turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37, we'll pick up the first 13 verses. And An unlikely hero. As you look at the story of the founding of the 12 tribes, as you look at the line of Messiah, Joseph is about as unlikely a hero as you can possibly imagine. He again is another example of God's grace being poured out in the lives of believers. He's a beautiful picture, if you will, uh, of a type of Christ, and we'll look at that uh, in some depth in a moment. But as you think on Joseph's life, the first thing that we find out about him is a whole bunch of negative things. And some of that's his doing, some of that's the brother's doing, and all of it applies to us as the body of Christ. Because this world has nothing for us, and when you set out to serve the Lord, when you set out to do God's will, you are going to encounter a a significant amount of of difficulty in your life. And so before we turn our attention, let's pray. We'll pick up here in verse 1 in chapter 37 of the book of Genesis. Father, we thank you for the beauty of this life. Lord, the life of Joseph, whom we'll one day meet when we get to heaven. And Lord, we are grateful that you use unlikely heroes. Lord, maybe some of us tonight feel like we're not good for much. But Lord, you can take a not good for much person and do much good because it is your spirit that works in us to will and to do your good pleasure. And Lord, when we're surrendered to you and obedient to you and desiring to walk in your will and your way, Lord, you can do great things with even the least of us. And so God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word and bless us as we study in Jesus' name, amen. Now, a word on typology or types, and I think it's really kind of important for us to discuss this a little bit before we dig in in verse 1. When you see or hear the word type or typology, um, it really is a word picture. In other words, it's describing something else through a picture in a situation that is not exactly uh, the, the same situation as you would find it a type of. In other words, in Joseph's life, he is a type of Christ. But it is always dangerous, and it is always a little bit fraught with theologic difficulty to carry typology or types too terribly far. And you're going to see that tonight in the life of Joseph. Because when you carry them too far, eventually you can say, well, Joseph was a perfect example of Jesus. Well, that's going to be really quickly obvious that that's not true. 
And, and so when you see types, the Lord's trying to speak to us. He's trying to give us a little bit of window. But be careful about taking typology or using types uh, very far because you will end up in problems. And we'll see three different ways uh, that we can use Joseph's story. Verse 1 here in Genesis 37. And now Jacob, so again, we're still uh, with his dad, Jacob, uh, the, the one who will bring forth the 12 tribes, who will be called Israel the uh, vast majority of the time, but he's still known as Jacob to the people. Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. And this is the history of Jacob. And while it's the history of Jacob, uh, the centerpiece is going to be actually Joseph himself, even though this is the history uh, of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, so he's a young man. Uh, he, he's not fully what we would call an adult, but he's old enough to have a job. He's old enough to have some responsibility. Being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. And so you can kind of see right off the get-go we don't know whether he's a busybody or whether he is, you know, kind of the self-purported keeper of righteousness in the family. Uh, we're not sure whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. We're not sure whether he's gossiping about his brothers. Uh, it frankly doesn't say. But you can kind of see if you had a bunch of brothers and you happen to be the youngest amongst them and you rat out your brothers, you're probably going to end, out, end up on the wrong side of that at some point in time. And so here he begins this bad report to his father. And now Israel, so again, still Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph more than all of his children. And here comes the problem. He is the favored son, but he's also the youngest among them. He, he is the one who should not be actually getting the inheritance. He should not be getting the birthright. He should be the one that is last in line, but his dad, because he is the son of his favorite wife, Rachel, is going to place upon him a burden that's going to be difficult on all of them. Because he was the son of his old age. And also he made him a tunic of many colors. And we'll actually look at this a little bit later uh, in, the, in our study in Joseph's life. So he, he's wearing this special coat. And I want to put this into perspective for you. Imagine that you're in the middle of nowhere. There are no garment factories. There's no dyeing vats. There, there's not a place where you can go to, you know, Fabric City. Uh, you, you do not have the capacity to weave intricate woven garments. And so you might understand that if someone actually had one that was not some color, some shade of pale, uh, some shade of animal wool, uh, if it were of many colors, not only would it be very, very, very valuable, perhaps worth an entire year or more's worth of your wages, it would also stand you out in a crowd. It would be one of those things that people would look at and go, why is that person wearing a very expensive and extremely ostentatious garment? It might be in our day and time like somebody walking around wearing the outfit of a king. 
it, it would be very telling about something in that person's life that would cause them to stick out. Now, you're the youngest son, and you're wearing the nicest clothes. It's like dad took you down and got you a silk Armani suit. And you're wandering around it, and the brothers have been shopping at thrift stores, okay? So you're not going to be in the good graces of your older brothers while you're wearing this, the really nice clothes, and they're kind of in shepherd's garb. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him. And could not speak peaceably to him. And so we begin to see the story unfold. And and as the chief actor, Jacob, here in this section, is going to be, it's not, you know, really Jacob, but Joseph. Joseph's story is going to really be able to be read in three different ways. And so I want to look at those. You can look at it, it's just literature. And in fact, how many of you have been to the play, Joseph's Multicolored Dreamcoat? It, if you've seen it on Broadway, it's a great play. I mean, it really is a, a wonderful play. So it can be looked at as literature. It, it has the capacity to stir hearts. It has the capacity to uh, well up emotion. You, you, you can't help but get engaged in it. It is a very inspiring story. Matter of fact, going really all the way back to the, the mid-1400s, but specifically around seven, the mid-1700s, uh, there were at least eight different plays that were written about Joseph's life. Henry Fielding patterned his hero, uh, Joseph Andrews, after the biblical Joseph. Handel produced his uh, a, a wonderful oratorio that was on the life of Joseph. So you have classical music. You have a couple of German novelists who wrote entire books. So his story is a very compelling story. But it's compelling for some extremely human reasons. When you have a young child, you have a favored child, you have a whole bunch of brothers, and those brothers mistreat the younger son, the younger brother, you can kind of see how you might get a bunch of people going, well, that's you know, a pretty juicy tale right there. And so you can look at it in that sense. You can also look at it by spiritualizing the entire text. Seeing God at work in Joseph's life and doing all these wonderful things, and thereby it becomes a type or a picture really of every believer in that sense. In other words, we all go through times when we are hated by family members. We all go through times when we might be the least, but God wants to use us the most. We all go through times to where we're going to suffer unjustly for doing really not much ourselves. We're all going to go through times where we're falsely accused. We're all going to go through times to where our lives are going to be governed by others. We're going to suffer consequences that are really not our own doing, that that God is ultimately going to use. And so you can see very quickly that spiritualizing, it actually works as well. But thirdly, and it is another way to spiritualize it, but in a very specific way, is to look at the life of Joseph as it applies to Jesus. And so it is that way that I think is the, the most important to us moving forward. Jesus and Joseph, in a lot of ways, are very similar. And how is it that we'll see that? Well, number one, Joseph is just like Jesus in that he was beloved by his father and obedient to his will. Anybody see that? 
That's who Jesus is, isn't he? Isn't that who Joseph is? Beloved by the Father, obedient to the Father's will, is the favored son. In Jesus' case, he's the only son. Amen? He's going to be rejected by his own brothers. What happened to Jesus? Rejected by his own brothers, amen? His own family, the Jewish people who were supposed to welcome him with open arms, rejected him, ultimately sold as a slave. What was the price that was paid for Jesus by Judas? 30 shekels of silver. Anybody want to take a guess what the price of a common slave was during those times? 30 shekels of silver. And so it is a picture, if you will, a typology of Jesus. How about being falsely accused and unjustly punished? We're going to see that as the story unfolds. What happened to Jesus? Well, we know what Pilate said. I find no fault in this man. He's completely innocent. As a matter of fact, I'm going to send him back to you. You try him. And he comes back. We're going to see this in the life of Joseph. That in fact, there really isn't anything that's warranting death, but he is actually going to be unjustly punished, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, exactly as Jesus is. Except Jesus was sold into slavery for your sin and mine. And finally, Joseph's going to be pulled out of that pit, sold to some camel traders, taken down to Egypt. What's going to happen to him in Egypt? He's going to become the Grand Vizier. He's going to be the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. He's going to be the direct line of authority from Pharaoh. And so God the Father, God the Son, and God the Son in that sense, subservient to the Father in that line of power. And so there's a beautiful picture of Joseph being a type of, of Christ. But what we're going to see before we get there is this incredibly dysfunctional, very destructive family dynamic that is the history that's gone on with this group of people since Abraham. You're going to see many of the same things come up again. Uh, and, and it's such a picture of God's grace at work in our lives. You know, one of the reasons that I love the book of Romans is that as you see God's grace unfold, just time after time after time, Paul can't get past the grace of God. And in chapter 5, and I want to share this with you because it's just it ties into this passage so well, when, when you consider the destructive forces that we're going to see at play in this family, and you see the wrongdoing that they undertake, you see all of the things that ultimately you can say, you know what, God would be absolutely perfectly just to just wipe out the other 11 brothers. Just toast them. I mean, these guys are absolutely not okay with anybody. The problem is when we condemn other people and put them outside of the grace of God, guess who we condemn? Ourselves. We put ourselves in a position to where if we are ever in need of the grace of God, which every person in this room is in the need of the grace of God, amen? We have to say to ourselves, well, maybe I don't deserve the grace of God. That's why grace is called grace. It's unmerited favor. It isn't earned. It isn't deserved. You don't get, because of God's mercy, you don't get what you've deserved. You get what you don't deserve. 
which is God's compassion and God's love. Verse 18, Romans chapter 5, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. These brothers are knuckleheads. These brothers in some ways are evil. These brothers are going to do the wrong thing. They, they are very much in, in jeopardy of being punished themselves. What they've done is actually a crime. The judgment came to all men through one man. That was Adam, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. Whose righteous act? That's Jesus. Amen? So all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. But because of what Christ did on the cross, it results in justification. I get my debt squared away with God. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners... So by also one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law actually entered that the offense might abound. In other words, the offense becomes very clear when you look at the law. So when you look at these brothers, you can kind of see that they're just acting in a way that probably many of us have actually thought. And I'm not actually asking for a show of hands, but I'm pretty sure most of you have actually thought of seeking vengeance on someone who's wronged you. Amen? No matter what it's about. You know, you're just like, man, I hope, I hope they get in a car wreck. I hope they lose all their money. You, you probably have had those types of thoughts about somebody. Here's the problem when you think those thoughts. Can you imagine if God actually did to you what you are actually thinking of happening to somebody else for the same reasons with which you are judging them? Well, they hurt my feelings. Or they did something to me that's unwarranted. Or they got something I didn't get. And all of us would be in grave danger of receiving horrendous things from the Lord. The only thing that solves that is God's grace. And he pours that grace out individually to anyone who asks, as we saw this morning. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. But where sin abounded, and this is where it gets beautiful, where sin abounded, where these brothers are absolutely wrong, where they think the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, punish a person who's innocent, they do the very thing that not one of us should do, the whole point of Romans chapter 7, by the way, they, they do that where sin abounded, grace hyperabounded. It abounded all the more. Grace actually becomes visible in that sense in a much greater way when there's been great offense. The great grace of God is able to match those two things up because God's grace is greater than my sin so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteousness to eternal life through the Jesus Christ our Lord. And so in that sense, you can kind of see how Joseph gets that part of it. He's like, I'm not innocent either. I've messed up. What I really want is restoration with my family. And so as we move through this, Joseph really is quite a bit like Jesus. But Joseph was hated. That's not what's supposed to happen in a godly family, is it? So I don't think it is. 
And yet that is what happened. Matter of fact, Jesus said it's actually good when we dwell together in unity. But he says also that you're going to be hated for my name's sake. If you endure to the end, you're going to be saved. There's this, there's this tension that exists between the problems in life and how we're treated and how we're supposed to respond. And this is where it gets tough without grace. Trying to respond to this type of treatment that Joseph's going to receive without the grace of God active in your own life is, I believe, nearly impossible. I don't even know how a person does it. If I didn't understand from the position that I sit in as being one of God's kids, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, as we celebrated at communion this morning, if I didn't have that active in my life, I don't know how I would relate to problems in life where I have been wronged. Generally, most people seek retribution. They have pent-up anger. They, they take out, they get a pound of flesh if they possibly can out of that person. And so here's the story. And you can see these things. Um, why did they hate him so much? What was going on in his life? And you can see several things here in these first couple of verses. Well, number one, Joseph had some integrity and the brothers didn't. They're out messing up in the fields. They're doing whatever's going on. And here's what happens. You see, as a child of God, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to have some integrity that a person in the world, generally speaking, does not have. You're going to look at it from a biblical perspective. You're going to look at it from God's point of view. And so what's going to happen is you're going to see that situation and you're going to know that you need to do something about it. But here's how it works out. You're on the job and you're there in that space in the warehouse and, you know, there's just a few extra parts that happen to end up in the toolbox of one of your business associates there at the company and those parts are very valuable and they just take them and, well, I'm underpaid anyway. And so this is just kind of like wages. And you don't see it that way. You see it because the Bible says if it ain't yours... It ain't yours. It's called stealing. And so you look at it from the perspective of, hey, that doesn't belong to you. You need to give that back. And you talk to that person. And after you talk to that person, they're saying, I'm not giving it back. I'm going to get in trouble. And you have to do the right thing, don't you? It's like, man, I've talked to you. I'm going to have to share with our supervisor that that stuff doesn't belong. You need to give that stuff back. Guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to be hated because you have integrity. Because you do the right thing. Because you're unwilling to compromise. We're going to see that that's the case in Joseph's life. His brothers don't have integrity. Remember who they are. They're the sons of Billah, so Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Gad Gad, Nasher. And basically he's their assistant. So He is the one that was born from Rachel, and they are the ones that are born from Laban's plot. Laban's little forced work issue. And so they're already kind of on the outside looking in. 
We don't know it yet, but the Lord is going to clearly state that Joseph's on a, he's on a different level. He's on a different plane. He's going to a different place. And so it isn't going to be easy for Joseph to work alongside of these brothers. They're older. They're more powerful. And, and basically it looks like maybe he's saying, man, these guys aren't even working. I'm doing all the work. And they're getting all the money. Did Joseph have a right to, you know, kind of inform on his brothers? Maybe. We don't know. But as we see the subsequent events unfold, it's going to be very clear. Joseph's made out of something different. As the body of Christ, we're made out of something different. You're going to go through these same things. You're going to have to make a decision whether you're going to follow the Lord or you're going to follow the world. And if you follow the Lord while other people around you are following the world, you're going to end up in the same place that Joseph ends up. You're going to be persecuted eventually. A second thing, Joseph's actually the favorite son. And this is the sad consequences that come with, if you're a parent and you're here tonight, this is the sad consequence of making an obvious choice of one of your kids over another. Now that may be that perhaps there's something in the personality of one child versus another child that's more attractive to you. Maybe one's an introvert, one's an extrovert, and you gravitate towards one or the other. There there are subtleties of personality that can cause us to think that way. But when you act that way and you show favoritism towards one of your children, I guarantee you, you are going to stir up some hatred in the rest of the kids. I guarantee it. Each one of them, as far as a believer is concerned, has the same value before the Lord. And as far as they should be concerned, they should see you as loving them equally. And if they don't, you're going to create exactly this scenario. This family was about as dysfunctional as you can possibly get. In their boyhood home home during the years when Laban's kind of controlling the scene... Maybe it would have made some sense if Joseph were pampered or whatever, but not now. And so, what does he do? He gives him a coat that makes him stand out. It gives him a situation in his life, and you can look at it this way. You know, in your life, it might work out this way. You've got some children, maybe you've got two, three, four Some of them have some aptitude to go to college. And you decide because that one son, that one daughter has an aptitude to go to college, you send one of them to college. On the rest of them, you're like, well, you better get a job. You don't think that that child that doesn't get to go to college doesn't know that you spent all that money and that time and effort and energy and you're going, yes, you're going to college. You're going down to get some public assistance if you don't get a job. It's not a great idea. It creates a situation in the family that is very tough to overcome. And now add to it that you give him something like this coat that nobody else has. They're walking around, yep, I'm dad's special child. You know the brothers are going, yeah, but we're stronger than you. We're going to bury you someplace. 
Don't do that to your kids. Figure out something wonderful in each of them and speak to them in love so that they know that in your eyes you love your children all the same. Don't set them up for failure. You, you offer them some coat, you know. It's, I grew up, some of you in here are old enough to remember when you actually could get a letterman's sweater. It was not a letterman's jacket. And there was a big deal because a letterman's sweater was cheaper than a letterman's jacket when I was in high school. So if you had a sweater, it was like, oh, well, you must not be a very good athlete because you got a sweater. I was a five-sport athlete in, in high school. And so I had a sweater. I can't tell you how much grief I caught from other people whom were not the athletes I was because I had a sweater. Guess what my siblings got? Jackets. And here was the reasoning. Well, you know, they're not quite as good as you, and so we thought we'd give them a jacket. A jacket an athlete does not make, okay? Just saying. But it caused all this tension and grief. And finally, I just said, you know what? I don't even want this thing. Don't put your kids in that position. Don't make them end up in that, in essence, having to defend why you have made them special. Or why you have not treated them the same third thing you're going to see here is that joseph's actually going to receive the covenant blessing he's going to be the one that's in the line of messiah obviously that comes from being rachel's child so it it ends up being this just this huge gigantic mess and what it does is it stirs up hatred and when you look at the history of hatred in your bible hatred is absolutely the root of a lot of other sins A lot of things flow forth from hatred. Jesus actually said that hatred in your heart towards someone can end up causing you to to murder them. But it stirs up dissension, is what Proverbs chapter 10 says. It, It causes people to think evil thoughts towards someone else. It causes us ultimately to think that they're less than they really are. It causes us to not see them the way God sees them. And when you hate your brother... Um, ultimately, you can end up in a place to where you're going to be just where these brothers are. So what if we throw you in a pit? Look, there's 11 of us left. It's like, Dad's not going to miss one of his kids. So what if we chuck you in a pit? There's plenty of us. One less mouth to feed. You, you start justifying the way you feel about people. And it's dangerous. The other thing that's so prevalent in this story is that joseph is going to be the source of envy pick up now in verse five with me now joseph had a dream and i'm going to get to this in a in a little bit here joseph had a dream there are exactly 21 dreams in the entirety of the bible six of them are held by kings And of those six, four of them died after their dreams. But of the good dreams, there's only about three or four that you can actually look at and say, you know, there's some application there. So be careful about 
hanging much of your existence as a believer on dreams. More in a moment. Now Joseph had a dream and he told his brothers and they hated him even more. Look at the setup here. He's the favored son. He's got the special coat. He's daddy's boy. And now he's got a dream that comes directly from the Lord. And it's about his brothers. Yep, they're going to hate him even more. And so he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field, putting together piles of wheat and wheat when it's too green when you harvest it is not ready to be turned into flour yet so it's bound in sheaths so that it can dry it's stood up on end with the grain up in the air and so they're binding sheaths so that it can become useful for something and behold my sheaf arose and it also stood upright And indeed, your sheaves stood around and bowed down to my sheep. This is a good way to get a beating. (laughs) It's like, let me tell you my dream. You all need to bow down to me. I'm the youngest. I'm the smallest. Dad loves me more than you. Nanny, nanny, nanny. And his brothers said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Here's the second dream. And he dreamed still another dream and told this one to his brothers. You've got to kind of wonder whether Joseph is horribly intelligent at this point in time. Or whether he just likes pain. He told it to his brothers and said, look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed down to me. Mom, dad, and all of you. And so he told this to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down to the earth before you? See, I wasn't making that part up. It's contained right here. It's interpreted for us. And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. In other words, dad's going, man, maybe this was the Lord. But it nonetheless is going to stir up a bunch of strife. Envy is, is, as Henry Jowett said, one of the most precious children of the devil. Because envy can make you do things that you would not otherwise entertain. And when you put it together with malice, which is actually acting on that envy, uh, it can become absolutely brutal. And the two of those things work together. And and once they begin to kind of unfold, what usually happens is all of a sudden now you start to generate things like slander and gossip, hatred, unwarranted criticism. All kinds of stuff flows out of an envious heart. Envy and jealousy are cousins. And so even though these things are true, and it may be that Joseph did, in fact, uh, receive these things from the Lord, we're not actually told, by the way, that this was totally from the Lord. 
But it does seem to indicate that this would be the truth of what would ultimately happen. And we know because the end of the story, this very thing does happen. But we're not told that yet. And so it isn't like he said, thus says the Lord. He's actually saying to them, look, I think this is what's going on. Should Joseph have told the the dreams to the family? I don't know. It makes a story wonderful later, but it makes Joseph's life an absolute mess. And, and think about it, if you're the family and you're hearing these things, and your mom and dad, and you know, it's like, seriously, we're going to bow down to you? You're the brother, seriously, we're going to bow down to you? You're, you're, the, you're the head of the family now? Well, to some degree, this was all set up by Jacob. That's in essence what the coat represented. It's like, you're special. Here's the coat. The whole thing's kind of a a tad crazy when you look at it. I think Joseph could have been a little more diplomatic. I know that. I know that when you take a little bit of time to at least give some explanation, uh, it could be that this was nothing more than adolescent enthusiasm, which occasionally happens. But you can kind of see how it all plays out. If Jacob had actually grasped the significance of these dreams which it doesn't appear that he did i'm pretty sure he probably would have figured out another way to tell his brothers about it tell his dad about it tell his mom about it be careful about sharing things that god shares with you intimately i've learned as i've gotten a little older to not stick my foot in my mouth quite as often and i can tell you one of the ways that you can avoid sticking your foot in your mouth spiritually Be very careful about using phrases like, the Lord told me. God said, this is from the Lord. These are the things that I know for sure. When you look at the great apostle Paul, he most frequently left room for God to alter the plans. And he usually said something to the effect if he was going to go somewhere or do something, if the Lord wills. Joseph doesn't do that. He leaves everyone no option. And when you back people into a corner like that, very often they're going to come out with a little bit of an aggressive attitude. And that is certainly what happens here in Joseph's life. He ends up suffering the consequences of that. Because what happens, you, you start, these things begin to well up and behind all of that veiled religious zeal, and now you've got people that are genuinely starting to hate you. All that self-righteousness, that that can be poison in, in uh, the family. When we're thinking about this, does God speak to us in dreams today? Because here you have a, a man who gets two of them in fairly rapid order. And I think it's really worth mentioning because there's a, there's a number of people, and unfortunately, and I, I'm being cautious how I say this, uh, there are some and they are generally ladies who are absolutely addicted to a woman named Cindy McGill. No relation. And if you go to her website, and I encourage you not to, you can send her a dream and she will interpret it for you and charge you 30 bucks. 
So I'm not sure how all that works out before the throne of God, but she'll get the answer for that, not me. But there is a whole theology that's now being developed around everything comes to you in dreams. That is not found anywhere in your Bible. And when people get overly concerned about dreams, and I have people coming to me all the time, I dream this, what does it mean? I will usually say something like Mexican food. (laughs) You were stressed out. Lay off the jalapenos. Um, If there are ghost peppers, no wonder. No, can God speak that way? Of course, he can speak any way he wants to. He's God. But the fact of the matter is we have zero, let me tell you again, zero evidence of a single person in the entire New Testament who is listed as an apostle either teaching on dreams or is there listed a gift of dream interpretation. Nobody is led that way in the New Testament. Peter, the only one that besides Joseph, Jesus's stand-in dad, and Zacharias, besides those two, the only other dream that's there is Peter, and it was about Mexican food. No, it was a basket. It was this blanket that came down with food on it. And God was teaching him a lesson about the difference between Jews and Gentiles now being bridged by the grace of God. It's like, look, if I've called it clean, it's clean. So it was a spiritual lesson very applicable to the whole church. But there are no other dreams. There's nobody wandering around. I have the gift of interpretation of dreams. Or if you have a dream, come talk to me. Or share a dream with me. There isn't any in the entire New Testament. And so though God can communicate by dreams, there is no evidence that God does today communicate through dreams. And while I'm not trying to say that God doesn't ever communicate through dreams, because the only times that I've ever heard of it, and it been seemingly plausible, was in third world countries to where Jesus revealed himself to people specifically for the purpose of their salvation. That makes sense. But dreams like this? God spoke in times past in a certain way. He speaks today primarily by his word. And if he wants to tell you something, he doesn't need to use a dream to do it. He can send a person to speak directly into your life so that it's very clear. If God was going to speak to you, chances are he's not going to make it a mystery. He's going to tell you exactly what he wants you to know. So please, in Jesus' name, be very careful about getting caught up in what dreams mean. Because the vast majority of the time, I don't believe they mean anything other than you had a dream. God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind. Amen? He's not prone to causing us to sit around going, I don't know what to do. Confusion comes from who? The enemy. Uncertainty, the enemy. So if you're confused and uncertain 
and you're wandering around going, I don't know if God spoke to me or not, chances are he didn't speak to you. You just simply had a dream. God communicated it to Joseph and the husband of Mary. God communicated to Zacharias, of course, but beyond that, there's no evidence that that's a primary way that God speaks to his church today. How do we hear God speak? When people claim that God sent dreams for them, I I think it's almost as likely that not only did God not send them, somebody else did. They're, They're just as likely to be satanically influenced as they are influenced by God. And unless you are very specific about the the certainty with which you're interpreting those events, again, be very careful. Because God's sovereign, he can certainly do anything that he wants. But Jesus said this, John chapter 14, verse 25. I shall pick up verse 23. Jesus answering and said to those that were listening, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Not if anyone loves me, I'll give him a dream. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home in him. And he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine. But the fathers who sent me. In other words, Jesus didn't have a special word for every person. Even Jesus himself was echoing what God has purposed and said. They were working together in the plan of salvation, in the plan to, to instruct us. These things I've spoken to you while I was present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I've said to you. So the work of the Holy Spirit is actually that work of information very often in our lives. And the Holy Spirit isn't going to be confusing. This is going to be cryptic. The Holy Spirit of God authored the word itself. And the word is plain. And so if you really want to know what God's saying, read your Bibles. Chapter 16, John's Gospel, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, who is the he? Well, we're told the spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak with his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak and he will tell you things to come and he will glorify me so anything that flies in the face of what god has already spoken is not from the lord if it differs from what god has already said in other words it's some special revelation just for you that gives you a word from the lord that no one else is going to hear you can be pretty much sure that it is not from the lord Because there is no private interpretation of Scripture. All things were given for doctrine, reproof, for instruction, correction, and righteousness. He will glorify me. We will take what is mine and declare it to you, and all things the Father has are mine. And therefore I said, He will take of mine, and I will declare that to you. So there doesn't appear to be any room for us to think that God is just going to give you a special revelation every time you need to hear something. But what he is going to do is remind you of exactly what he's already said. 
And this is where the Lord works in my life. I can't tell you how many times I'm going, oh, the Bible actually speaks to that issue. And here's what it said. And so I read what the word says. And then I get a a proper understanding of what God's trying to say to me. And there are lots of tools to help you do that. If you've got a smartphone, you have Blue Letter Bible available to you. It's free. You can just type in a question in there. See what the Bible has to say about those things. Then read those passages. Joseph's going to be involved in interpreting uh, other dreams. But there's no indication that he even fully understood his own dreams. As he waited in prison, he's actually mentioned in the 105th Psalm as he was sold into slavery. We're we're told that he was still seeking the wisdom of the Lord. So he was trying to understand God's plan as well. He wasn't actually leaning on those dreams going, wow, that's the end of everything. Now I know what the dreams mean. And so as we see this unlikely hero before us, as Jacob's sons begin to develop lives of their own. The brothers aren't going to appreciate the supposed unique talent that he has, and in fact, it's going to get him into further trouble. And actually, when you look at the prophecy that is actually being spoken here, then it becomes very, very clear that God was actually giving us a picture of what would happen as we get to the end of the book of Genesis. But I can tell you this, the number of times where I've gotten a direct revelation from the Lord about what's going to happen to the rest of the world are exactly zero. God hasn't spoken to me because the canon of Scripture is full, it is filled, it is done, and what God said in times past still stands today. So I don't think that people need a special revelation from the Lord. I think we can get the full revelation that we need from God's Word, and then He's going to speak to you by the power of the Holy Spirit and through prayer, but He's not going to have to give you something that's akin to a dream in order to instruct you in the way he wants you to go. Is Joseph a dreamer? Yes. Is he anointed? Yes. Is he beloved of God? Absolutely. But he's also going to be tested by God. So you've got to take the whole package. And so I'd encourage you to be careful about building a theology on dreams Joseph's a special kind of hero, special anointing from the Lord, a very special relationship to the rest of God's prophetic plan and to God's plan for redemption. Why is he special? Well, we're going to see that unfold over the next several chapters. And so keep your eyes on heaven. Read the word. Pray. And let God speak into your life. We're going to see Joseph actually live in technicolor here pretty shortly amen let's pray (coughs) excuse me father we thank you lord for your goodness to us and god forgive us when we keep seeking after special revelations from you lord your word has been revealed to us and your word says about itself that it contains what we need for life and godliness We can know what you want us to know by simply knowing your word. And so we pray that you would help us to to understand your word more deeply and concisely. Lord, in in a way that's useful and available to us. We thank you for the life of Joseph and for the life of Jacob and these brothers, Lord, as they 
provide a backdrop really in, in many cases of what not to do. Lord, sometimes knowing what not to do is nearly more valuable than knowing what to do. And so, Lord, we just thank you for blessing us with your presence, by your spirit, speaking to us through your word. Continue to do that, Lord, as we grow in grace. In Jesus' name, amen.